You're listening to an ACR 2021 podcast, a compilation of reports, interviews, perspectives, and panel discussions that feature the Room Now faculty and noted experts. Hope you enjoy. Hi, good evening, uh, Room Now. Uh, this is Robert Chow reporting live from ACR 2021. I'm joined today by my colleagues and friends here at uh, the Room Now faculty for the spinal arthritis and uh, axial spinal arthritis uh, faculty group. Um, we would like to share our sort of wrap up and our, our thoughts on the highlights from this category in ACR 2021. So without further ado, let me uh, introduce everyone. Uh, let's start with Tony first. Hello, I'm Anthony Chan. I'm a consultant rheumatologist in London, United Kingdom, and really happy to be here with uh, the XBAR group. Uh, thank you. Rachel? Hi, guys. I'm Dr. Rachel Tate. I am in West Palm Beach, Florida, and uh, this is an amazing team to be a part of. Great. And Sheila? Hi, I'm Sheila Reyes from the Philippines. I'm, I'm a consultant rheumatologist and Yes, I'm really happy just to be part of the, the group and discuss what's, uh, what's new and what's up to date with Axial Spa. Great, great. And but not least, uh, Akil. Hi, my name is Akil. I'm, from, uh, I'm an internal medicine resident at uh, University of Texas in uh, Galveston. I'm happy to be here and talk about ankylosing spondylitis. Wow, so Akil, you're beating us all. I don't think any of us could talk about ankylosing spondylitis as a resident. So props mm -hmm. to you. Thanks for joining. <laughs> so uh, with that being said, actually, Akil, you start us off with uh, what was your, your highlight of, of this conference in, in our category? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there are quite a few interesting uh, abstracts out there. Um, I guess one of the ones I saw was uh, abstract 562, which talked about um, uh, inpatient um, hospitalization and resource utilization in patients with uh, ankylosing spondylitis. Um, it, um, looked, they used the uh, national inpatient sample, this large uh, database, and they looked at hospitalization in patients with uh, ankylosing spondylitis, uh, just because from previously in the literature, there's not much information regarding hospitalization in patients with AS. And they found that the uh, ho uh, hospitalization rate was relatively high in uh, patients with AS, approximately one in every 2,000. And um, they found that compared to the general mm -hmm. population, um, the odds of uh, ICU admission were high, and even the length of stay was high, and the costs were relatively high as well. And I thought was really interesting was that the most common reasons for admission to the hospital were infection-related diagnoses like UTI, uh, pneumonia, sepsis. Um, and I just think this is a really interesting area and uh, uh, will be interesting to explore in the future. Yeah, that is very interesting. You know, I, I think my initial thoughts on that would be does everyone think, or do you think that's more the AS driving the hospitalizations or perhaps the treatment they're on? Did they mention, um, you know, how many were, let's say, on biologics versus not? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I don't remember the exact details of like the treatments of uh, what they're on, but that would be definitely something really interesting to see and, um, you know, what, what drove the uh, hospitalizations if they're not well controlled or uh, certain treatments may drive it more so than others. And Akil, I think that when they looked at this information in this data up front, they were really talking about upper respiratory tract infections, pneumonias, things like that. Um, and I believe this was earlier than COVID. So it might be interesting to see like what that data actually looks like now too. And as we progress through not only a pandemic, but into the future with other treatment options and modalities. Definitely. Yeah, that'll be really interesting to see, especially uh, before and after uh, COVID and even with like different biologics as well, uh, seeing how that can impact the outcome. 
For sure. Okay. Um, thank you very much. Uh, Sheila, do you want to share with us your, your favorite abstract? Okay, my, my favorite abstract, um, which I think is also a favorite within the group, um, is abstract number one, 1919. So it was um, presented earlier today in the, um, in the abstract session. So it's about um, an artificial neural network um, to detect uh, radiographic sacroiliitis in the diagnostic setting. So this was done um, by the group of Dr. Dennis Padabni. Um, so they saw that the um, sensitivity for the detection of um, radiographic ACSPA was 78.7%, but a high specificity of 93.9%. And, and that was really an, um, well, as Dr. Padabni said, um, the specificity was really important, especially in, in imaging techniques like this, because um, you know that would really help identify um, those that do not have the the disease, and so um, it makes the test more reliable and um, more helpful in in detecting um, sacroiliitis. And um, the reason why I think for me this this got me interested is because um, this can be the future and in, in imaging of um, um, axial spa. Uh, uh, especially, we know that MRI is, um, is really on the higher price of things and not all areas um, get MRI, uh, has um, good accessibility with MRI. So if we are able to use um, x-rays um, in detecting earlier mm -hmm. our patients with AXPA, then, then that, would be, um, that would be a good test for, for everyone. And it can also standardize, um, you know, standard, it can be a, a, a tool to standardize imaging in, in um, AXPA, especially in clinical trials. So I think there's lots of potential here with, with that um, artificial intelligence uh thing that they did yeah i think we're having a lot of discussion about this even pre uh you know panel so feel free to, to chime in everyone i think the uh it's a really interesting and nice and practical post i think the focus is not so much on the diagnosis but in more in terms of the classification of as you know the classification can be quite challenging the lower grades especially grade one and two you can make your pick on some days it can be one and some days it can be two i think it's very easy when it's few so you've got bony ankylosis but in the lower grades it's difficult and a lot of time goes into validating sometimes two or three radiologists are disagreeing about it so if we can find a way where we can use a method like this artificial intelligence to standardize it for clinical trials for research i think that would be a way forward I agree, Tony. I think this is one of those um, potential game changers for us. And even as you mentioned with radiologists, there's dissension amongst them too. If you don't have a musculoskeletal radiologist reading your films, you know, this could be something we could actually utilize and have easy access to. Um, and of course, machine learning is kind of the wave of the future, as Sheila mentioned too. Right, right. And I think this actually brings up pretty good from the last panel some of us were on with the psoriatic arthritis. Um, and there was a discussion of this abstract where they had this pretty simple algorithm of dermatologists referring, you know, patients with back pain, chronic back pain to, to rheumatologists to, 
evaluate for possible axial spondyl arthritis. So I think if you add on to that rather simple uh, algorithm and then perhaps add on the CNN uh, neural network, um, you have yourself a pretty you know darn good evaluation and probably just comes to you ready, you know, already with the diagnosis perhaps. So I think, yes, yeah, definitely a wave of the future. Um, Rachel, do you wanna share with us your favorite abstract? So I know we were talking about this a little bit offline. I was really interested overall in some of the imaging and progression um, abstracts this year. I think they were all really, really good. And especially when it comes to the kind of concept that we have or the dogmas that we have surrounding AS. So one of my favorite abstracts was number 0907, and that was Dr. Keyes Camp et al. And um, it, as I'll kind of frame this this way, there's a lot of controversy regarding non-radiographic AXPA. You know, is it, is it early AS? Do these patients progress? Do they respond to therapeutics the same way? We all have these questions, but essentially this group operated under the dogma that 10% um, approximately of non-radiographic AXPA patients do over a two-year period progress to AS. And they were spot on. They looked at patients um, every, well, for a six-year cohort, and they looked at patients every two years with additional imaging and found that really it was about every, um, at to the two-year mark, about 10% more patients who were originally non-radiographic AXPA had actually um, converted, if you will, into AS patients. And um, this was obviously done by modified New York criteria. You know, all the criteria we're used to seeing within um, and all of our RCTs, but what this makes me, it, it kind of gives me reassurance that we'd already seen this from a German cohort that patients about 10 to 12% every two years will progress. But it makes me also think, am I missing this in my patients that I'm going ahead and I'm saying, okay, you're non-radiographic AXPA, but um, what if they are progressing? Even on these therapeutic agents, as we, we normally think, I, I think you guys are experiencing some of this, these questions too. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I think a really important point there, Rachel. I think the what we're showing us is that non-radiographic and radiographic have similar burden of disease. It's not that one's milder, one is just purely earlier. I think the key thing is about risk stratification. How do we stratify people who are going to be progressors? And some, because it's interesting in the study, there are some who don't progress as well. In fact, there's some look like they regress. So I think that's also an important research question. I think what we know is that uh, race CRP and the presence of baseline syndesmophytes or baseline radiographic change seem to accelerate because there's another study that showed that most of this was happening between 30 to 39 years of age. But if you had radiographic progression, you kind of brought that forward by probably a decade. So, you know, those people, we probably should go harder with our biologics uh, if they are known to have increased risk of progression. Yeah, I agree. So it's, um, it, really, it really boils down to, because um, at this point, it's still hard to, you know, to identify if, this is AXPA, is this, this our patients going to progress? So um, it's, it's, it, for us clinicians, it's always the question of whether, okay, so what am I going to do with my patient? Um, what, what, what medicine or what choice of treatment would really benefit them? And sometimes it's not, it, we know that it's a spectrum. So there's always that question of, okay, so who's going to progress and who's not going to progress? 
Um, and early, early identification is, is key when it comes to AXPA. So there. Yeah, yeah no, I think all, all very good points. Thank you so much. And uh, last but not least, Anthony, do you want to share your favorite abstract? Yeah, um, so I was very interested in uh, the whole area of dose tapering. Uh, there were two uh, nice posters from the Danish group, 364 and 929. Uh, one was looking at if people have very low disease activity for a year, so if their uh, best die score was less than 40 and the physician global was less than 40, they could dose taper, but in a, in a stage-wise manner, not uh, stopping it completely. So they went two-thirds, half a third or zero, and up to 52% of them could last on a, on a dose taper uh, for another year, but some did flare. So the people who flare, it turned out to be that the physician global assessment is the greatest predictor. In other words, if you are the rheumatologist and if you think that these people are not suitable for flare, you're probably right. So um, that goes back to your clinical, your clinical uh, suspicion. And some people, perhaps there are other factors as to why they may not be so suitable for dose taper and some will. So I think it's just a nice uh, study showing that, um, you know, clinical assessment is still quite important. Of course, it's important. <laughs> I <laughs> like it very much. So, even yeah, though it's machine be... learning we're talking about to some degree today, there's still, a, there's still a role for us. No, I agree with you, Tony. I thought this was really interesting overall. Um, I hope and I aspire to continue to have good physician globals. I mean, I, I think that's something we all need to keep working on. And, and there's so much emphasis on a good history, a good physical, mm -hmm. and we need to keep that. You know, yeah. Akil, I'm sure you're seeing that in training too. There, there, we need this. We have to yeah. have this. It's a combination of everything. Yeah. Yeah, and I think the re yeah really interesting thing with that study actually, I brought it up with um, um, Dr. Kush in one of the daily wrap-ups, was that uh, even with MRI findings, the Physician Global outpaced it, and so. I think all of this is just, you know, I think much like you said, you trust your gut and, and uh, hopefully the patient listens to you. Um, any last comments from anyone before we wrap it up here? I would just uh, like to point out one thing. Um, Akil, you must be with a really good team because I hear the goals, one, knowledgeable. <laughs> and we're looking forward to you joining rheumatology in the future That's and right. jumping on board to knowledgeable oh, as well. Definitely, yeah. I yeah would love to join uh, during fellowship. Absolutely, <laughs> that's great. <laughs> all right. Uh, no other questions. I hope you all enjoyed uh, our our wrap up here with the spinal arthritis faculty group. Uh, we look forward to seeing you all next year, hopefully in person, and maybe we can all share a cheesesteak in Philadelphia. <laughs> Otherwise, tune in tune in to roomnow.com for coverage of ACR twenty twenty one. Take care.